Hello, and welcome to JobsCast. This is Pat Bubble, your host. Today I talk with Kim Bell-Curry about being a middle school teacher. Kim and I discuss how she decided to become a teacher and shifted away from becoming a doctor. We discuss what makes a good teacher and a not-so-good teacher. We chat about Kim's self-perception from a young age and the expectations of the household she grew up in and how those expectations were undergirded by emotional support. We get into the difference between learning and getting A's and how teachers can help students to focus more on the former. We converse about what Kim would change in classrooms if she were secretary of education. We discuss how the behavior of children and parents and Kim's own behavior as a teacher have all changed over the past 19 years. We talk about tact and empathy, about how the digital world seems to be affecting relationship building and emotional development among middle school children. We get into the importance of learning how to make mistakes, and we talk about the importance of strong school cultures and misconceptions around teaching, and how hope and passion tend to get tempered by realism in adulthood, and what we can do about that. And of course, there are some great stories about kids. Kim talks about boogers and cell phones, and there's a story on the more serious side as well about trauma. As I work in education, this topic is near and dear to me. Uh, I don't share much about my own journey as an educator. I probably actually shared more in last week's episode with Jason Gotts, if you're interested. But there's so much to be said about education. I'm sure I will come back to this topic with more teachers, but my conversation with Kim serves as a great entree into the conversational territory of teaching. I will share a quote From Plutarch with you and leave you with the conversation. Plutarch says, A mind is not a vessel to be filled, but a fire to be kindled. I now present to you my conversation with Kim Bell Curry. Kim, welcome to JobsCast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. So, Kim, why did you decide to become a teacher? Let's see. Um, The main reason that I decided to become a teacher um, was in high school. I was in, I believe it was 10th grade. It was ninth or 10th grade. I was taking geometry um, with a teacher who I'll just say she didn't have the zest for education that I did. And (laughs) the way you could pass her class um, with an A or B was to buy her breakfast. Um, I asked, I kid you not. Where Um, where was this? uh, Montbello High School. Um, in Denver, Colorado. It was horrible. She was the basketball coach. Um, She was also a teacher and everyone loved her. And she was a wonderful basketball coach and a a very nice lady. My only problem with her was the fact that when I'm asking her, what is a, an isosceles triangle? What's an an acute angle? She was like, oh, it's in the book. Just look at the example. Why are you worried about that? We're not doing that right now. You can do that later. And it was always like a push off or we'll get back to that later. She just did not teach. And it was very frustrating to me um, because I love learning. I mean, I was that kid who I was, I'm I'm still a nerd to this day. I love learning. <laughs> and Man. so, yeah, it was very insulting and sad. She was a teacher, but she wasn't teaching. Then the following year, I had an algebra teacher and she was fantastic. Um, and she's the reason I became a teacher. Um, it's kind of a combo. She took the time to teach me all of that information that I didn't get from my previous teacher. She was busy. She was a personal trainer. She was a mom. Um, a teacher that she had another second job, yet she still took time to, she gave me her personal home phone number so I could call her whenever. Wow. She 
work early to help me with, you know, with assignments and just to help me understand. So she's the reason I became a teacher. She just sparked this new hope in me that like there are teachers out there that do love what they do and who will take the time um, and are passionate about their job to help students learn and help us to be successful. And she really believed in me. She's why I became a teacher. Yeah. That's great. So you had a, a fairly early example of how to do it right and how not to teach. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> did yes. you buy the geometry teacher breakfast? I did not. And she gave <laughs> me a C. <laughs> geometry sticks out in my mind as as a tough subject. I remember, I think as it goes with math, it is. it does seem to be one of those subjects where there are a number of kids in the room who grasp it more intuitively. And there are other kids in the room who will be able to learn and do the problems, but might need a little bit of more focus and work. I was in the latter camp proofs, especially doing proofs toward the end of geometry. It just it just really didn't come naturally to me. Mm-hmm. So the the idea of a teacher saying, just go look at the book, it's like, well, <laughs> that, that's like saying, you know, go teach yourself Chinese. I mean, it, it would really help to have an active, focused, patient teacher for that. Exactly. Yes. And I, I craved that. Like I re- and I just couldn't understand. Like I go to class every day, Patrick, and I was like, why won't you help me? To me, it just it baffled me. I was like, I don't get it. She was so lazy and everyone loved it. It, it was just it baffled me. And I, she was a great basketball coach. Is that why people loved her? Nice because lady. she was a great basketball coach? I think that's what it was. And she was very like, you know, jokey joke. She had built relationships with the kids, but she was just lazy. She wasn't one of the teachers I would want to have a relationship with, and I didn't have one with her because like, it was it was a negative experience that we had together. How would you describe your evolution as a student? Meaning, did you see yourself as a young girl who had some aptitude, who was smart? I'm wondering about your early self-perception as a student. Let's see. I feel like definitely when I was um, in elementary and middle school, I knew I was smart and I knew I was a good student. That was an expectation in my house as a child growing up. You were going to do, you were going to try your best. Um, It's okay if I failed, but it wasn't okay if I didn't try. My parents were very supportive and still are. Um, And they just, you know, if there were things that I didn't do as well in, like they believed in me and they were like, well, baby, that's okay. Like you just keep trying. They weren't the type of parents where it's like, oh, well, you're just stupid or you're going to, you know, you're a failure. It was like, they were like, that's okay, sweetie. Like that's how you learn. You make mistakes and you try again and you get better. I feel like once I got to middle school, that was already ingrained in me. I knew I was smart and I knew I was a hard worker because that's what it was expected of me. And I loved learning. To me, just learning new things is exciting. I'm a very curious person. I'm very complex. And so I think becoming an educator, it grew out of wanting to help people um, and just that love of people and why certain people do things that they do. Um, Why do they think the way they think? Where do those perceptions and those ideas come from? And just like really finding out what makes you tick. In middle school, I did not want to be a teacher. I wanted to be a doctor. And when I got to high school and it was time for us to start going out and doing practicums and deciding what you want to do and applying for colleges, I went and shadowed my doctor because I love my pediatrician. Yet I found out her job was really hard. I did find that I loved kids. And so I was like, oh, I want to be a pediatrician. So I went and shadowed a pediatrician and it was wonderful the first three or four days. The last day that I was there shadowing her, there was a baby who came in and she couldn't figure out what was wrong with the baby. They're doing all these tests. The baby's crying. You can tell like she's in pain. And to me, Patrick, that was so hard 
And I was like, I can't do this every day because they can't talk to you and they can't tell you what's wrong. Um, and I don't want to be poking and prodding and doing all those tests trying to figure it out. And that just crushed my heart. Um, yeah. And so I never went back. And um, she was like, well, it's not like that every day, Kim. And I was like, I just can't do it. And I was very emotional. Very, very... <laughs> so it came, yeah, it came in high school. It came after that. My counselor was like, you're a people person. You get along with everybody. You're very likable. She was like, what about teaching? And I was like, I looked at her, Patrick, and I was like, teaching? I was like, I never thought of it. So I went and did a practicum at a school and I loved it. I fell in love with the kids, the teacher, the, like the process, all of it. And I just, from there, it just grew and I skyrocketed and I was like, yep, this is what I'm doing. And That's I definitely- so interesting. It's a really interesting point. It makes me think I need to get a pediatrician on this podcast at some point, because I think about that work, teaching, medicine, these are some of the indispensable jobs in the world. And it strikes me that with regard to taking care of babies as a doctor or small kids, I would imagine becoming any kind of doctor, obviously it comes with mm -hmm. the prestige and status of having a very respected job and okay. the salaries tend to be good. But of course, being a doctor is extremely demanding and time consuming. And perhaps what's even more intense about it is that you have to see innocent babies suffering who can't communicate with you, which sounds like hell. That sounds like the worst thing for anyone to do. And yeah. so- but it occurs to me that you must get into that specific branch of medicine. One probably has to, I don't know, have like a really thick skin or almost be like hardened to some of the, the emotional, you know, intensity, because if not, then like I would have the same reaction you would have. I would be like, oh, I, I just, I can't do this. This is way too emotionally overwhelming. But, you know, doctors administering care have to kind of keep their cool and not get caught up in their own emotions. So there's like a there's like a kind yeah. of paradox to me because it seems like you need to have that emotionality to be interested in the job in the first place. But then you sort of have to turn mm -hmm. off that emotionality to do the job well so as not to get overwhelmed. There's kind of a paradox <laughs> right? there. It's weird. It's like you have to be able to detach. That's a concise way yeah. to put it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. There was something called the General Social Survey that was conducted in 2007, and it looked at how people talk about pleasure and happiness on the job, and not surprisingly, jobs that were service and community-oriented reported the mm -hmm. highest levels of pleasure and enjoyment. Um, teaching was among them. It was interesting. Number one, according to this survey, was actually clergy. So nuns and priests reported, yeah, the highest degrees of happiness. And the lowest uh, in terms of happiness and pleasure was roofers, people who have high occupational hazard, which, yeah, that kind of checks out. It's mm -hmm. dangerous and stressful to be on a roof all day. I thought that was interesting. Well, Kim, I want to ask you, so you have a wealth of experience, 19 years teaching first, second, fourth, and fifth. Did I get that right? Yeah, you got them all. And now six. Yes. That's oh, right. and now mm -hmm. six. Great. So every age of learning is a pivotal age of learning, but that range in particular, you mentioned your love of learning. And I think mm -hmm. maybe at the later end of that spectrum, fourth, fifth, sixth, students really begin to learn how to get good grades. And that mm -hmm. is not always synonymous with learning, right? Learning content in a deep lasting way, the kind that could also be character forming and building mm -hmm. civic awareness and civic identity. Uh, ultimately, you know, learning as a means of making a person a better person. Getting an A doesn't always achieve that. And so 
kids often learn, you know, the sort of strategies and shortcuts, thinking about knowing what their teacher might like them to write, stuff like that. What are some of the sort of strategies or methods that you try to employ? How do you try to focus on this this sort of broader educational goal that I'm talking about of kind of character forming? Right. I've always felt that it's not so much about the grades. Um, for me, it's more about building those relationships with scholars and with, with children and developing hope in them and de developing that belief that you can do anything that you set your mind to. Um, I feel like once a child, once a person knows that you believe in them, like anything is possible. And from there, you can just move forward. I mean, of course, you know, I encourage that do your work, turn it in, try. But when a kid is really struggling, like, and, and you have all different varieties of students, like you do, like you were describing, you have those kids that get the straight A's. Um, you have those kids that they might, maybe they don't really understand it, but they're, they, it just comes naturally to them. And so they do get the A's. And then you have those kids who struggle. You have those kids who just do the bare minimum to get by. And I feel like once you build the relationships with your kids, that's the key to everything, because that's how you find out how to motivate them, how mm. to encourage them and get them to apply, as you were saying, being good citizens, being good people, having morals and values. Because to me, that's more that's worth more than any history sure. lesson, math lesson I teach you. And so for me, that's I think that's my key to all of it um, is just building those relationships and finding out, OK, what makes you tick? And how can I show you that I genuinely care about you and I'm here for you? It's not about, you know, you have to be a straight A student. It's more about it's the way you approach it. It's your process. And I'm just very, I'm very nurturing. I don't know if that's from being the oldest sibling in my mm. family. It just comes naturally to me since I started this work. It's one of those things where when you're in my class, I'm like, oh, yeah, you're definitely, you know, that's my baby. If you're my student, you're always mine. And I always think of you in that sense. And so I would seek later on, because um, now I work at a K-8 school. So it's, it's from kindergarten to eighth grade. And I would, you know, if I had this, this student in fourth grade and then I would see them in fifth or sixth, they um, they would always come back to me. Or if I'd see them in the hallway and they, they were misbehaving or they were having a rough day, you would be like, hey, you know, what's going on? What's the matter? Like they knew. Miss Curry cares. I can go talk to her about whatever. And tons of them, even even to this day, still come back. They message me on social media. They'll call. They'll text, um, email. So it's um, it's pretty amazing. But that that's how I try to um, approach it is with relationships. I love that approach and that philosophy. I'm extremely confident that the world is better for your work. So thank you for making kids Thanks. feel loved and doing a great job. Of course, you're welcome. Thank you. It's my pleasure. I love it. Wouldn't Kim, trade it for anything. So 19 years is a, is a lot of experience. This I got this question, shout out to my buddy, Chris. Chris is an absolute all-star teacher. He taught in DC and then became a principal, I believe of a middle school. I asked him, I, I gave him your, your basic bio and I said, hey, Chris, what questions would you want to ask Kim? And he had a really good question for you. So 19 years ago, when you got into school, importantly, that was pre-cell phone era. At the turn of the millennium, people were beginning to have internet in the home, but not everyone had internet at home. A lot of people were getting personal computers then, but not everyone had them. They weren't ubiquitous the way they are now. And smartphones right. definitely were not on the scene around, 2000, oh. uh, around 2002, I guess, 2001, 2002. So thinking about some of those technological developments and... I don't know, perhaps other societal trends. How would you say, Kim, 
kids are different now compared to how kids generally seem to be. And again, of course, every kid is different, but in terms of any general trends you've noticed about how kids were sort of thinking and behaving and interacting with each other and with you in the classroom 19 years ago compared to today? Wow. That's a great question. Shout out to Chris for that. Thank <laughs> you. Um, I feel like when I first started um, teaching, you know, 19 years ago, obviously the technology piece has changed it. So they're less interactive and social with each other. Back then, 19 years ago, they were more into each other. They built relationships. They talked. Mm. Kids were mad or sad if they're, you know, they got into an argument with their friend and she doesn't want to talk to you anymore. Or, you know, he doesn't want to work with you in a group. They're not playing with me at recess. I think back then the struggle was getting them not to be worried about each other and to focus on how you treat them. And that is going to make those people come back to you and, and still want to be your friends. Like it's okay to get into an argument with your friend or to have a disagreement. Like that's how people grow. That's how you tell each other your truths. I had one kid way back 19 years ago, and he was like, Miss Curry, you know, I really love John. Like, John's my best friend, but John's breath stinks. <laughs> and, like, I don't know John. Like, his breath stinks. And I was like, oh, my gosh. I said, well, you know, I said, that's really nice. And he's like, I don't want to hurt his feelings. I, I still want him to be my Aww. friend. What should I do? And, um, you know, it's teaching him those life. Um, he was, what, 11, okay. 10 or 11. He was like, what should I do? I said, honey, you should tell him. And he goes, he looked at me like, are you crazy? <laughs> and I was like, crazy, I said, mystery. you have to tell <laughs> you're crazy. And I was like, no, baby, you have to tell him. I said, now you have to do it tactfully. And he's like, well, what does that mean? And I said, look it up. That was my go-to Patrick. If kids would say, if I always use vocabulary and I don't tell them what it means. And they go, what does that mean? And I'm like, go oh, look it up. And so I would have liked your class. I said, look I've it always up. been a word nerd. <laughs> oh my God. Me too. <laughs> and so he was like, okay. So he looked it up. He comes back. He goes, okay. He goes, I get it. He said, but I, I don't know if I got, I can do this tactfully. And so he said, would you help me with it? And I was like, sweetie, of course, like that's what I'm here is to help you. And so, you know, we did some role playing and he's like, well, what if he does this? And what if he says this? I said, you know what, sweetie, at the end of the day, if you were my friend and you didn't tell me like that, I had a booger in my nose and you just let me sit there and keep talking. I said, I will be so upset with you. And he was like, really? Why? I said, because that's embarrassing. And you're supposed to care about me and be my friend. Yet you're letting me walk around with this booger hanging out of my nose. That was the, ex the example I used all the time. Brilliant. And the kids Brilliant. were like, that's good, Miss Curry. And so from then on, Patrick, if I had a booger in my nose, literally, or food in my teeth, <laughs> they'd be like, Miss Curry, Miss Curry. And I was like, thanks, guys. Thank you. So, um, and it worked for him. You know, he went, he had the conversation. He was like, Miss Curry, man, thank you so much. He's like, John's brushing his teeth like he was so happy that I told him he said I just didn't expect that reaction from him and so it's those types of interactions that I feel like they're just not there anymore from us being in the remote learning from technology just the way the world is now even when, before we went to remote learning we'd be in school and if um, Billy and Johnny are friends they would rather text each other then go and have a conversation and look at each other and wow. talk. And they could literally be in the room. I even experienced this with my daughter. She had a sleepover with one of her best friends and it was real quiet. And I was like, oh shoot. Like if they're loud, you're good. As long as there's noise, you, you know, everybody gets quiet. You're like, hmm, let me go check on them. So I come in the room. These two are sitting not more than five feet away from each other. They're texting. I go, what are you guys doing? Are you playing a game? No, we're texting each other. I said, you mean you're texting your oh, other they were, friends? They were texting each other. In the room. Oh, like they were wow. like, you know, Oh my God. Like you and me texting right. each other right now instead of talking. Wow. And I was like, why are you doing that? It's so weird. I think the other big difference from the kids then and now is 
back then kids had parents who actually cared. And I don't want to say, Patrick, that the parents don't care now, but I definitely see a disconnect with them being supportive of their kid, checking on them, like making sure they're at least, you know, they're coming to class, they're doing their work. I mean, when you become a parent, that's something that you are automatically signing up for. Like you have to do that. And the parents back then, they did that. Like they were on their kid. That's all I had to say was, oh, I'll just call your mom. I'll just write a note to your mom. Please don't do that, Ms. Cray. I'll fix it. I'll get it done. Now, that fear is not there. They're not worried about that. We call the parents. We send messages on Dojo. We email, text. The support is not there. We were talking in a professional development last week, just talking about the amount of kids who are neglected, the amount of kids who are not checked on, the amount of kids who just don't come to school. Some of them, it's like, okay, well, you don't have internet in the home. You know, it still goes back to what you were saying. Every family doesn't have a computer. Every family doesn't have um, internet access. And so those situations are acceptable. We understand that. But for the kids that... You've got iPads, tablets, the new shoes. You got, I mean, it's like, okay, you have internet, you've got all this, but you're still not coming to school. And it's sad. Those are the biggest um, differences between kids then and now. It's hard. It's like, how do you get to them? How do you break that pattern that they have? And a lot of kids, they say, they're just like, I just don't like remote learning. And I get it. I mean, I, it's rough. We tell them all the time, we don't like remote learning either. Yeah. We'd much rather be in the classroom. Do you think we signed up for this? We could sit in front of a computer? Like, no, but this is where we are right now and we've got to make the best of it. But it's hard looking at their little faces. Yeah. And that's another thing. They don't want to turn on their camera. And I get it. I'm like, sweetie, I need to see you. I just need to know you're there. Can you type yep. something in the chat? Say something on the microphone. I need to know you're there. What a seismic change from 19 years ago until now. And it occurs to me in listening to you, Kim, that... I was born in the late 80s, and I think being a young kid in the 90s and then being a a teenager in the aughts, and as a millennial, I'm a member of the last generation that will remember life before the internet and smartphones. Younger generations were born with it. They are more digital natives than I am. And it seems to me that one of the sort of overriding concerns, and you spoke to this a little bit, was working on human beings naturally want to connect. Of course, we're deeply social, but the problem maybe in my generation and most previous generations was getting kids to control some of the excessively hostile or hurtful or painful actions toward other kids. So, you know, emotional control and working on good communication and compromise. And I love how your story illustrates doing something tactfully. That's super important too. <laughs> so in a nutshell, we're, we're sort of talking about dealing with the complex range of feelings that one has when interacting in a social space. And of course, it's scary to deal with other people's emotions. And when we try to predict how people will respond, we sometimes imagine the worst, like little uh, 11-year-old John did. But now it seems that we're not so much trafficking in the negotiation of of feelings and emotional complexity. We're just trying to, it sounds like, get kids to feel at all, to feel anything. Yes. Because I think, right, and that's, to me, that's so sad and scary. That's just sort of a reaction I had. I don't know if you want to build on that or respond to that or if you agree or disagree. I completely agree with you. I think it is so hard to get a reaction from them. We had another PD recently 
and it was about rigorous conversations and rigorous questioning. And um, it's so cute when you ask those questions in class. It's literally crickets. They're not thinking. They're not. They don't want to try. And I'm like, come on, you don't have any brave souls out there. I was like, come on, guys, you can't be afraid to try. Like this is how you learn. This is how you grow. I was from making mistakes. That's okay. I said, guys, if you came to school every day and Miss Cree expected you to know everything, I said, what would be your purpose in coming to school? Why would you do that? I don't even know why you would bother. I said, it's okay for you to not know things, but just getting them to care is so challenging. Uh, We just took um, an iReady test, which is like just to check their reading progress and growth, monitor it and help us, you know, to continue planning for the year. And I was like thinking, okay, Kim, what's the carrot you're going to hang over their head to get them to do well? Because Number one, they're at home. So you're competing with cute babies and cousins. There's the internet, there's video games, your bed, the kitchen, mom and dad. Like there's so many other things that are distracting them that competing with. And so I was like, okay, what can I say to get these babies to focus and like to try to improve? So of course I told them the basics about doing well so that, you know, you're put in the right classes so that teachers are planning appropriate lessons for you moving forward. So when you go to the next grade, like you're prepared, your teachers go, oh yeah, you know, so-and-so can read, they can do this. But then it was like, but what's the cherry on top, Miss Curry? Because kids don't care about that. And so I said, you guys can choose to be excused from a class period. Like you can choose one class that you don't have to go to. They were like, well, do you have to do the work? Yes, you have to do the work. You just don't have to go to class. Okay. I said, <laughs> great well, innovation. I'm trying. I'm trying here. <laughs> so I said, you can also choose to um, be excused from an assignment. You can pick an assignment and now it has to be teacher approved that you just don't have to do. They go, well, what does that mean? I said, you get, an, you get a, a free A. Oh, okay. That's cool. So they start, you know, the enjoyment, the excitement starts building. They go, what else? What else? So I said, well, the last one that I was thinking about was the amount of points you increase on your iReady test. We can add those points to any of your assignments in any of your classes to help boost up your grade. And so like kids are, the lights are coming on. They're like, oh, cool. So then I was like, is there anything else you guys want? So it starts sparking engagement. And that's all we're trying to do, Patrick, is build some engagement. That's right. Build some excitement. And I feel for them. I do. I couldn't imagine being a child and having to go sit in front of a computer for six hours a day and learn. And so, yeah, I completely agree with you. Just having some type of a response and just caring about something, that's where I'm at. And when the kids yeah. are excited about that, one comment that the babies make a lot is they're like, it's already time to leave your class. They're like, why does it go so fast in here? And I was like, I don't know. I said, you must be having fun. So those are the things that help me to keep going. It's like, yeah. okay, I am making a difference. Some people do care. They do see me trying and putting out that effort. And, you know, I'm connecting with them. But yeah, I, I completely agree with you. We talked about the evolution of kids, but how about yourself? How would you describe some differences in the thinking and behavior of Kim, the Kim Bell Curry of 19 or 18 years ago compared to the past few years? I think when I first started out teaching, I thought that I was going to save everyone um, and help all of them to reach their goals, reach their dreams, be successful. I was just way more, I wouldn't say, I'm still hopeful and I'm still positive towards it. I just feel like I'm more realistic. Kim now is Mm. more realistic and she understands that it's not going to be as easy as I thought (laughs) when I was younger. And that teaching is, it's a lot harder than what I thought it was going to be. And us moving to this remote situation, there's not even a word, Patrick, that I could use to, to describe it. It's indescribable. And so I think the biggest difference between Kim then and Kim now is she's more realistic about the expectations of her job and the realities of what teaching is now. 
and what that looks like. You know, I'm still very hopeful. I'm still passionate. I still think that I am going to change kids and going to make them better people because they're our future. Like I tell them that all the time. I go, sweetie, one day you're going to be taking care of me. You're going to be taking care of the old people. Like, I don't want you to be a little jerk. I want you to be a good person. I want you to grow up and, you know, you see an old lady and she's crossing the street, you help her. I'm trying to teach them, you know, those morals and those values so they're good people. It's my hope that conversations like this one can be useful to younger listeners because it can sort of shed light on how long life is in the sense that there are different periods of our lives if we're fortunate enough to live a number of decades. I just think about young people uh, who go to college and then graduate from college. I think people are really inflated with this sort of carpe diem ethic where you're going to seize every day and uh, the world is your oyster and you're going to climb every mountain and conquer every task. And I think the realization that sets in over time for basically everyone is life is hard and we as individuals are limited. Now, you could look at those two statements and a person might say, well, geez, Pat, that sounds pretty bleak and hopeless. I really don't think so. To me, I I think those are just premises and I completely agree with you. I think to say that life is hard and that we are limited is not to say that there's no hope, but it's not to say that there's no enjoyment. There's still hope and enjoyment and fun and growth, but it's to recognize that in time, I think the bar that a lot of you know, young people graduating from high school and college may sort of have for themselves is I'm going to be an impassioned world saver every day of my life. It's like, no, you're not, honey. Like, no, you're not. And that's okay. Yes. <laughs> I, I agree with that statement as well, Patrick. Not wanting to put their fire out, their passion. I love that. But it's yeah. just being realistic, knowing like, just because you don't want them to go out there and have their fire put out, or for lack of a better uh, metaphor, like their balloon popped. Right. Like, that's just not realistic and you can go out there like that and that's great but understanding like it's not going to be like that every day it's just like when I went and visited the pediatricians like most of the days were great and the babies were smiling and she figured it out and everybody was happy parents were happy and then there was that one day and just for me I was like yeah I can't I can't do it and I don't know how you do it and I was like gosh Dr. Peterson you I have this newfound respect for you because how do you do this every day I don't get it. And to tie this part of our conversation back to what we were saying earlier about our shared concern of of simply getting kids to feel the good, the bad, and the ugly, I'm always wary of projecting in life. One cannot understand the deep intricacies and complexities of another person's mind and heart. I think in a lot of ways, we're even strangers to ourselves. I think there are things about myself I, I I don't even understand. So given that, I really don't want to be overly dramatic or general when looking at an entire generation and saying, oh my God, they're not doing the the kind of socio-emotional learning that I was doing as a kid. Therefore, they're doomed. Therefore, it's a tragedy. I mean, I want to leave open the possibility that even the two kids on their sleepover sitting five feet away texting each other, I want to leave open the possibility (laughs) that there's some kind of learning or some kind of sharing there that's just foreign to me, that that I really can't see or feel but that they may be okay and that they may be acquiring morality, identity, civic skills in just new ways, just uh, uh, 21st century, you know, more technologically sophisticated ways. I want to leave open that possibility, but it's hard because I guess it's just hard to balance on the one hand, all of this that I'm saying that there there are just things I can't understand and I want to sort of trust the processes and developments that are occurring 
But on mm-hmm. the other hand, I'm not willing to relinquish the notion so easily that learning how to be a, a social creature in the world is not only important, but is the stuff of life. I guess there's nothing yet, even given how different the world is now compared to 20 years ago, that makes me think there's anything more important than relationships. I still believe relationships are the most important part of life. It's very tough to, to sort of balance these two concerns. I keep saying things that I that I intend to be questions and then they end up just me sort of bloviating. So I don't know if you want to react to that or again, agree or disagree. No, you're fine. I completely agree with you. I share in your thoughts of like, I hope that there is some form of like, it's a positive and they are building those social skills and those connections and those relationships. But I agree with you and I share in your comment of, I don't know if it's there. Like, I don't really know if it's happening. I don't know how genuine and how authentic they are. And to me, I I don't know, Patrick, I don't think you can compete. And of course I'm biased because that's how I grew up and that's what I think is better. That's my opinion. But I just don't think that having a relationship and being able to look at somebody in their eyes and feel that aura and know like what they're thinking and how they're feeling and learning how to read that, I don't think that doing it on a computer screen or on the, the phone, the texting, that can't compete. Even even like when we were in the building, I remember teachers emailing me and I would say, why don't you just pick up the phone and call? You know, I'm like, I'm right here. Like you could call or I'm right across the hall. Like you could come out and say hi. Like that personal connection and those interactions are huge. Yeah. Um, and I just think they make us better people. It makes you be more compassionate, more understanding. It widens your perspective. I just think it makes you better all around. I hope they're still getting something from it, but I don't know. Those are great points. And the research anyway, doesn't support the idea that it's peaches and cream from a developmental standpoint. Kids, as you know, have higher rates of depression than they did before. There's what's called online disinhibition effect, which doesn't pertain only to kids, but to adults as well, where if you have a screen that is protecting mm-hmm. you from a negative response from another person, then it inclines people to, I mean, just think about YouTube remarks, right? Like how nasty and cruel right. they could be because they seem impersonal right. and depersonalized. So so online disinhibition effect is this phenomenon whereby people have an easier time and are, are more quick to be mean, harsh, cutting, ungenerous, et cetera, when typing things on a computer, they'd be less likely to do that if they had to deal with the emotional consequences of seeing another person hurting in, in front of them. So yeah, there, I mean, there are things that that are certainly there that we see that are concerning, but we got to, <laughs> I'm going to take a cue from you and just keep trying to, to be innovative in, in eliciting feelings and getting people to care. I think that's yes. what it's all about. That's so huge. I completely agree. As I was seeing certain things, because of course, even in remote learning, you have kids who they are mean and hurtful in some of the things that they say. Now, granted, this class that I have right now, Patrick, they're wonderful and they're very kind. Oh, good to hear. Um, they are very helpful. Yes, um, they're very helpful to one another. But you always have one. You know, there's always that. And I hate to say bad apple, but there's always an apple that's different. And it's okay to be different, <laughs> but it's sure, like, sure. you can't be mean. You know, it's like you can be different, but you can't be mean. One thing I've learned, Patrick, is like, I, I, the first time I encountered a mean child who was just literally mean to everyone else, I was like, what is wrong with you? And in my earlier days, I would say that to kids. I would go, what's wrong with you, sweetie? Why are you so mean? And what the one baby that I actually finally made that connection with, she shared her story with me. She had been abused um, emotionally, sex, sexually. Yeah. Um, she was neglected. Um, and so it, it came out. That's just how she responds. Like yeah, that's, that's what how she, manifested. yeah. And I was like, 
oh my gosh, like I need to step back. And before you judge Kim, it was like, you need to step back and understand where are they coming from? And some kids just need to be retaught, you know? And I think that's the beauty of working with kids is they are reteachable. It's not Mm. too late. And I think that's the beauty that I have. I feel like in being able to work with kids versus adults, I don't think I could work with adults all day, Patrick. I just don't in that capacity. Do you know what I mean? Like I know I'm a teacher and so I work with other teachers, but the beauty is that most of my day is spent with kids. So when I have to go do a PD all day and it's like, oh, there's no kids PD day. Some teachers are like, yeah. And I'm like, no, like I'm over here, sad face. Like I would rather work with the kids, but they just need to be retaught. They just need to be taught how to respond, how to be kind to each other, how to let people know, hey, I didn't like when you said that to me, don't just lash out or for some of them, that's all they know. Like that's what they got at home. And so I think just learning that and being able to step back and take other people's perspective into account. And that's why I said building relationships is huge. You can't do that from a screen. You know, you can't do that text. You just can't. Kim, I probably should have asked you this at the top of our call, but have you (laughs) spent all 19 years of your teaching in the same school? No. Let's see. I've worked at, is it three, three or four different schools? Um, I started out at Greenwood Elementary. So I worked at Greenwood Elementary first, um, teaching second grade. And that was where I started out and did my practicum um, right out of college. And I got a, a position right there. And then um, also that was in really the rough. Denver and area? It was still in Denver. Mm-hmm. Denver district. Um, it was downtown though. It was closer to my college, the college that I went to. Like I said, it was where I would go do my practicum. So when you become a teacher, you have to, of course, go and spend lots of hours with teachers and students so that you can build your craft and learn how to deal with certain situations and just get comfortable with the whole process. I had a teacher, we were in a, it was an inner, inner city, very low socioeconomic school, high turnover rate for the kids and the teachers. Um, And it was one of those things where she was leaving. Her husband got a job. They were moving to like New York. And she was like, Kim, I'm leaving. I know you're almost done with your schooling. Would you like to take over for me and be the long-term sub for the rest of the year? Oh, wow. And I jumped at it. I said, of course. Um, So it was second grade and the kids already knew me, which that was the beauty of it. But Coming in, Patrick, after someone out, the one thing I learned is I don't, I would never do that again. I'd rather be the teacher who starts and then leaves because it's so hard, especially me being new, coming in after she had already set up her rituals, her routines, her expectations, and then me trying to come in and still be me. Either you have to fight that battle of, you know, I'm not Miss W, like I'm Miss right. Curry and this is what I'm doing. And so that was rough. I did it, but I will never do that again. So that was my advice to any teachers. (laughs) Yeah, don't do that. I mean, if you just need it, okay. But no, it's going to be an uphill battle. And then let's see, after that, I went to Maxwell Elementary. And I was there for about nine, I want to say like nine or 10 years. Um, And that was also Denver District um, teaching fifth grade. I then got a job at McGlone, McGlone Elementary. No, it was Oakland, Oakland Elementary. These are all Denver. I taught first grade. all public schools, Kim? These were all public schools. Yes, all public schools. I taught fourth grade in a different district in Cherry Creek for like a year. And that was weird. It was a it was a track school, Patrick. And so it was like they tracked on and tracked off. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. You go to school for like nine weeks and then you're off for three weeks, um, the kids mm-hmm. and the teachers. Um, and then you go back on for nine weeks and then you're off for three weeks. Um, What's the idea behind interesting. that? I think they did it because their school was so large. The population was so large and um, they couldn't fit everyone in the school. And so oh, wow. by them rotating. Yeah, it was crazy. But the parents loved it. 
because it was like they could schedule vacations and time with family. And I didn't like it. I thought it was crazy. And, but um, they <laughs> they loved it. The current school that I'm at now, this is my ninth year at, um, at Omar Blair where I'm at now. So given that diversity of environmental experience, how much does school culture matter in terms of school leadership, support staff, facilities? Oh, it's huge, Patrick. It's everything. Yeah. Um, it is everything. Yeah, that's an easy one. It's everything. If you don't have that, it's in a, what is it? A windstorm? It's a dust. Mm. It's horrible. You know, like there is no guidance. There's no leadership. Or if there is, I've been in schools where it's been, it's been split. I've been in schools where you don't feel supported. You don't know what you can do. You don't know who to go to. I've been in schools where there is no school culture. It's just like you're kind of there. You go and you do a job and oh, wow. the teachers are not, they don't really build relationships with you. They're not supportive to you. They, they don't care if you're successful. It's like, did you do your plans? Did you do this? Okay, we have to do, like, it's more like a, a corporation. You know what I mean? Oh, wow. Um, and it felt cold. Yeah, some places were very cold. So yeah, I think school culture and leadership is everything. For someone who hasn't been in school for a long time and who has no teacher friends uh, or family in network what would you imagine might be some misconceptions people have around what it means to be a teacher i feel like some misconceptions people might have are that teachers just give assignments expect the students to do them you know we grade them you meet with parents and uh, you have summers off and it's a cake job. I don't really think people understand all of the additional work and time and thought that goes into being a teacher. Most teachers don't spend their summers just relaxing. Like we're planning, we're thinking about how can we make it better for next year? The things that I failed on or I didn't do as well on this past year, how am I going to improve those? How am I going to make it better? Most of the, the year is spent in meetings we spend a lot of time meeting and talking about kids, and I don't think people know that. I think the emotional demand of teaching is severe. A teacher has to be a feeler and a thinker and uh, a doer in the classroom, among other things. Uh, I have a lot of teacher friends who've been in classrooms for some time and have experienced tremendous burnout from the emotional exhaustion. From what I've seen and heard, it's a tough job. And, and of course, teachers do not get paid what doctors get paid, uh, importantly. Kim, if you, this is a, another Chris question. Since the first one went over so well, here's another question from Chris. <laughs> we'll go to the macro for a moment. You're the Secretary of Education. You are given vast resources at your disposal, and you could make one big bet to invest in or change public education in America. What would it be and why? Yeah, Chris has great questions. I think in all of my years, the one thing that uh, teachers are always asking for um, is time. Mm. And and I don't know how you invest more time, Patrick, or how you buy that, but I feel like time to do the work that we need to get done, it's a big ask. One thing that teachers have is so much on our plates, and we don't have enough time to get everything done, and that's why like it spills over into well after 3.30 or 4.15, whatever time your day is over. And for a lot of us, it starts early in the morning before we even clock in, if you're a morning person. And so I think something that would be wonderful to invest in would be all teachers have personal assistants who are teachers. And so like not just having one teacher for a classroom of 30 kids or 25 kids, 
but having three teachers for that one class to get everything done and to be effective and efficient and like really beneficial. I think we need more adults. You need more people who are skilled in their craft, who know what they're doing, who know what kids need, who care about the kids. Because you can't just be, it takes the right also combination. Like you can't just throw anybody in there and say, okay, well, you have three teachers. You know, why are you not successful? It has to be right. the right type of individual right. who is going to give those kids what they need. Be, you know, you need to be adaptive. They need to be willing to change for the kids. Because like at the end of the day, if you're not there for the kids, you're you're there for the wrong reasons and, and you should leave because eventually yeah. it's going to break you. And so, yeah, I think that's what I would say. I don't think we should just have one teacher in a classroom. I would invest in having more teachers assigned to one specific class. We need more hands on deck. I think that was another reason too, why back in the past, education, I think was so much more successful. I remember my mom coming up with like, she did the cutouts or she did the, the graded some papers or you know what I mean? She laminated some stuff or she would come up and make copies at the school. Parents were more apt historically to come in and to give their time and to give their yeah. support for their kids' education. I see that lacking. <laughs> we had a parent, um, I don't know how many years ago. Um, I remember her baby's name. I don't remember her name. Um, his name was James and his mom was amazing. She had about, what was it? I think she had five or six kids. Um, Oh. I think two were adopted. Like you could tell she loved kids. She just loved kids. Yeah. <laughs> and um, <laughs> she was awesome. She came up to the school, Patrick, like she had a schedule. She was like, Miss Curry, what do you need? When do you want it done? I left uh -huh. her notes. She came in and got what she needed and did it. If she, if I wanted her to work with kids, she worked with kids. And so she was just amazing. And she did that even after her kid left, you know, she still came and supported and just gave back to the community. So I feel like everyone says how important kids are at education is but everybody's not putting in and doing like what they need to you can't just and it's not something where you can throw money at teachers because I know that's a that is a huge issue like we, we're not paid for what we do but you can't throw money at that I feel like you need manpower I don't think they'll ever be able to replace teachers you know right. they have like at the grocery stores they have the use scans where you can check out by yourself yeah, you can't yeah, do that it's gonna be a, a self-teaching kiosk right <laughs> you can't do that and so, yeah, I think that's what I would invest in, Patrick, would be training more teachers and developing like the right type of individuals to go into the classroom and not just having one, but having multiple to support. Even if you only have 20 kids, that's hard to effectively do what you need to do in a timely manner. Like they talk about grading papers, giving feedback, supporting the child social emotionally. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And then all the meetings you have, I mean, just think about it. If all of us didn't have to go to the meetings, you know, some of us could still be getting the work done, you know, right. like you have a rep representative. So like student council, it's like, okay, I'm the president. I'll go and I'll come back and report. I, I just, yeah, there's a, there's definitely a breakdown in the process. Of course, curriculum, I would say something about the curriculum as well. It needs to change. I also think that what we're using, it needs to change. It needs to be updated. It needs yeah. to be for the now. You know what I mean? So that these kids, when they go out into the world and they're trying to get a job, like they're prepared. They know what's coming. So yeah, yeah that's what I would say. Yeah. That strikes me as a wonderful answer. Thank you. And I'll, I'll try to do my part and promote our conversation on social media and try to get incoming secretary of education, Miguel Cardona, to hear this and uh, <laughs> make, <laughs> make, the, make the appropriate <laughs> changes. <laughs>
<laughs> Thank you so much. Kim, I'm, I'm mindful of your time. We've covered a lot of ground. Any closing notes or thoughts, anything that we didn't cover that you'd like to say about your time as a teacher or about teaching in general? Just that it's it's wonderful work. It's very rewarding. Um, I love it. I wouldn't change it for anything. If you're looking into being a teacher, becoming a teacher, I say do it. And just that, yeah, the work we do is, it's very important. And, and um, yeah, I love it. I, I say, if you want to do it, go for it. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. That's perfect. You're welcome. And this has been a real pleasure okay. for me. Um, thanks again. And I hope to, hope to talk to you again in, in the future. Of course. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Patrick. Thank you.